Hey y'all and welcome back to Gimme the Creeps with Abby and Daniela. Heidi ho, Ranger Joe. <laughs> what is that from? That's cute. I'm, I can't remember. Dang. Dang. <laughs> well, <clears throat> today I thought I would take it easy and we would have a little fun and read a creepypasta. Oh no. I know, right? At least it's broad daylight. So for us right now, it is anyway, but um, guys, if you are wanting to be scared and creeped out, then you can wait till nighttime to listen to this episode. And it's going to be my first time reading it, but I did look at the like scariest ones or whatever. Like I filtered in the scariest or most highly rated creepypastas into the search. So that is what I'm using. And I went to creepypasta.com. This is called Things Darker Than Man. Oh. Mm-hmm. And these are ones that people submit constantly. Uh, so this one was written and posted in February of 2021. And I like this website because it tells the author and the writer's names on this so that I don't feel like I'm just, you know, using other people's work for entertainment right. purposes. <laughs> but um, so Julian J. Alexander Uh, wrote this and somebody posted it on here. So here we go. Um, It says it's about 31 minutes of reading. So I also liked that it told me that because before I would just kind of skim the creepypastas just to see if it was going to be long enough for an episode. But now I can just go into it blind and we We can just be scared together. Okay. Let me wet my whistle. Oh, hey, the Ranger Joe thing was from Full House, I think. Oh, there you go. I think it's an episode of that that stuck with my subconscious for some reason. That actually does make sense. (laughs) (laughs) It does stick with you. Okay. Things Darker Than Man by Julian J. Alexander. It was 3 a.m. on July 17, 2004, when I found myself outside the site of the seventh murder in four weeks. My partner, Jim McAllister, and I had been the first responders to this particular incident, the first two to survey the carnage before the forensics team and cleanup crew made it to the scene. We had followed a twisted breadcrumb trail of broken glass, debris, and blood up to the master bedroom where we found the mutilated body of the occupant torn in half and adorned with tattered linen and ruby-tinged goose feathers. Her name was Sally McMahon. She was a 74-year-old woman who, according to her neighbors, lived alone and seldom had any visitors. There was no reason for anyone to have so much as to let her dog run amok through her garden, let alone kill her. Yet here we were. We had ruled out the idea of it being an animal attack after the first victim's post-mortem, a local farmer who we found torn to pieces in his ransacked kitchen. Initially, we had put it down to being a bear or even a particularly aggressive wolf, but that was before a spooked-sounding forensic pathologist from the local hospital called in to Sheriff Alverson's office to gravely relay to us that the bite marks found on the farmer's body were thoroughly baffling. Allegedly, the corpse was covered with human teeth marks and more alarmingly, teeth marks that were deemed unrecognizable. We had all hoped that the following incidents, when they happened, wouldn't turn out the same way that they were animal attacks or that the post-mortem would yield different results. Of course, even by this seventh murder, Some officers who were on the scene were still throwing around the idea that these were all just the work of one very aggravated bear. I had been standing outside the house, taking long, frequent drags of a cigarette and listening to the chatter of the other officers as the faulty streetlight above me played a fierce tug-of-war with the night. The detective assigned to the case, Donald Evans, emerged in the doorway and began to walk toward me, his face ashen, even in the molted orange glow. Officer Lemansky, call me McHale. I said, extending my hand out to shake his. You're Detective Evans, right? Yeah, that's me. It's my understanding that you were one of the first responders. That's right, I said, my words muffled by the smoke that exited my mouth in a ghostly wisp. I get that these incidents are uncommon around these parts, to say the least, but I need you to tell me if you or Officer McAllister noticed any details that stood out from the other crime scenes. I forced my mind to delve back into the last hour and a half. Jim and I had entered the house at around 3.10 a.m., firstly noticing an upturned cabinet and broken glass strewn at the bottom of the staircase. Upon reaching the landing, we found yet another ra- ravaged furniture 
and broken glass, and more than that, a thick crimson trail of blood that led into the master bedroom. My mind drew a blank. It was gruesome, but nothing that really stands out from the uh, the handprints. <clears throat> there were handprints on the ceiling, I said. What? Evans? <clears throat> what? Evans nearly choked. There were bloody handprints on the walls and on the floor, but there were some on the ceiling, too. You, you sure they were handprints? Evans stammered. Sure as I am that we're having this conversation right now. Bloody handprints. Pronounced, too. Wasn't like the perp threw the victim up there or anything like that. You can go and check for yourself. Absolutely. I... <laughs> I... How did... Shit. Evans jogged back to the house and disappeared up the stairs. I looked over at Jim, who had been sitting on the hood of the car and staring into space ever since the forensics team had got here. The case was weighing on him, I could tell. With each passing incident, he grew quieter. His mind was on something, though. The handprints on the ceiling had thoroughly frightened and confused the hell out of me. All of the murders up until this point had been grisly, but none had really possessed any anomalous details aside from the lack of fingerprints and the bizarre teeth marks, both of which we were all used to by now. I was about to attempt to make conversation with Jim when Evans rushed back out of the house. He looked even more somber than he had before, almost sickly. You were right about the handprints. We're going to take samples and see if we can identify the perpetrator from that. He almost sounded choked up. Right. <clears throat> I didn't have much hope for that. No attempts at DNA fingerprinting or blood sampling had progressed the case at all in the last three weeks. The forensics, forensics team are saying that the corpse is covered in bite marks. Human? Probably. But we'll have to wait for the postmortem. Could still turn out different. We don't know yet. We knew. We knew all too well. Evans spoke with the same vain expectation that the other local officers did, and it was becoming apparent that there was no way to downplay this as something less serious than it was. There was a person out there doing this, someone who was savagely butchering people, seemingly without reason. These were serial killings, yet the words serial killer had yet to be used by our sheriff or even Detective Evans. You and McAllister can head home, Evans said, defeat lurking beneath his gruff, authoritative tone. Authoritative tone. Oh, can't talk today. Authoritative tone. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's been a long night and the forensics team will be here for a while. I wished Evans good luck in the hunt for any further evidence and motioned to him to get in the car. I looked back at the house as I turned the vehicle at the end of the street, knowing that soon the dawn would pull the obsidian shroud from the street and the townspeople would awaken to yet more unanswered questions. A week later, my exhausted brain was jump-started when slow morning by a phone call whilst I was at my desk. I didn't recognize the number. I'm sorry. Fucking... <laughs> Can you hear? Yes. <laughs> I was just like, what is that rumbling? It's fucking pepper she's <laughs> got attitude for some reason but it's freaking me out because oh like, what are you growling at yeah she senses that there's something darker than man <clears throat> and then you're telling this fucking story right <clears throat> perfect just ignore her just uh crop mm -hmm. that out of the audio <laughs> <laughs> okay <clears throat> My exhausted brain was jump-started one slow morning by a phone call whilst I was at my desk. I didn't recognize the number. Mikhail Lemansky, who am I speaking to? Hi, Mr. Lemansky. This is Alice Corman from the Jefferson Herald. I was wondering if you had any additional information on the ongoing investigation into the string of murders in Torkton. Her words were shot, or a shot of adrenaline that went straight to my head. I, or perhaps any clarifying comments on today's story that could make it to a later publication? How the hell do you know about this? How did you get this number? I barked sternly. Three days ago, we received detailed information about a series of killings in Torkton. Do you read the newspaper at all, sir? As if on cue, the most recent copy of the Jefferson Herald was slammed down in front of me by the exasperated Sheriff Alverson, the bold headline perched arrogantly atop the cheap, fragile paper, Terror in Torkton, the Sawney Bean Murders. I looked up at Alverson's scowl and then spoke into the phone. Uh, excuse me for one minute. I ended the phone call immediately and set the phone down. <laughs> <laughs> I perused the article with growing disgust, already put off by the tasteless reference to the Scottish cannibal in the headline. In the early hours of July 17th, Jefferson County police were called to the scene of a suspected home invasion, only to be met with a grisly discovery, the mutilated cannibalized body of Sally McMahon, 74. This is said to be the seventh in a string of similar horrific incidents that the authorities have been keeping quiet as not to frighten the citizens of Torkton. Looking further down the page, I saw my last name appear as well as Jim's. I looked up at Sheriff Alverson in shock. What the fuck is all this? I exclaimed. 
Alverson's steely gaze persisted. I was hoping you'd know, he said dryly. My mind raced. I never told the press shit. I know that this is the kind of stuff that they love to sink their teeth into, especially around here where nothing happens, and a thought popped into my head. Jim. He had left his gun and badge on Alverson's desk the day after the seventh killing, and no one had been able to contact him since. I couldn't think of anyone else who would have tipped off the press about this whole ordeal, because no one else at the scene, no matter how harrowed, had been quite as out of their minds as Jim was. It seemed like the ever-irate sheriff read my mind. You think this is McAllister? Looks that way. The only other person who would have been liable to let any information escape the scene was the lady who called it in, and we made a point not to give her all the details after finding out the bite marks. We spared those details from past witnesses, too. No one in this fucking precinct has heard from him since last week's incident, and no one has been able to contact him. Is he married, Lemansky? The sheriff asked. No. Kids? Girlfriend? He lives alone, sheriff. I said, my voice descending into an unimpressed monotone. Yeah, Jim had just up and left. His personality had been melting away ever since the case was opened. It wasn't like him at all. But Alverson was and had always been an uptight, neglectful son of a bitch. In the eight years that I'd worked here, he'd never once made a real effort to get to know me or any of the other officers, for that matter, despite the fact that he had very little else to do. Perhaps he had a chip on his shoulder because he was laid off from a big shot position in Seattle or something, but it's not like his dismissive cold self would ever tell me that story. I knew what was about to come out of his mouth. Well, Lemansky, you know the, di the dipshit better than anyone else here, so it falls on you to pull him out of whatever or wherever he's holed up and talk to him. With all due respect, Sheriff, I said, almost gagging on my words, what would I even say to him? The papers have already printed. Alverson cut me off. You tell him whatever you got to tell him. Have him head down to Jefferson Herald and tell them that the forensics screwed up and that it was an animal attack. I can't have these bastards making us look like we aren't handling this, so they're going to pull the goddamn headline right now. This is a quiet town, and I don't want those fucking Hoover boys down here. Cannibalism. Jesus Christ. Alverson was perhaps the only human being in the world who still used the term Hoover boys to describe the FBI after 1969. Mm -hmm. There was a joke about his ever so confidently spoken outdated lingo amidst the officers, unbeknownst to him. I shot up from my desk, unwilling to tolerate the unanswered what-ifs of the situation. Sheriff, what if they don't pull the headline? What happens then? What if they don't retract their statements? Alverson, ever angry, stared at me with an expression that suggested that he was about to blow his top again. He shook his head as his mind attempted to come up with some kind of solution. Right. We interview every single man. No, every single person above the age of 16 in Torkton. We get officers out there going door to door, demanding mandatory questioning for every man or woman, boy and girl above 16 years. They can tell anyone who refuses that they will be immediately put down as a suspect. I can't, I cannot have the local people thinking that we can't handle this, that we aren't handling it. It was all to do with how we appeared, not what we were actually doing, bastard. Sure, it mattered that the people of Torkton felt like we were confident and assured in the way we dealt with things, but the fact of the matter was we weren't handling it at all. We were taking blind swings at an invisible assailant who had us all scared shitless. Sheriff, I began. Go find McAllister, he grumbled. I pondered arguing for a second, then decided that there was no way I was winning this fight. All right. I'd tried contacting Jim earlier in the week to no avail, so I knew that my only real option was to head to his place. That is, if he hadn't packed all of his belongings together and jumped on the next plane to the East Coast. As Alverson sauntered back to his office, I hurriedly tidied the small mess of papers on my desk and headed out to the lot, opting to take my own car instead of the one, instead of one of the precinct's vehicles. I held a weight upon my shoulders as though the thick, humid air was pressing down on me. Jim's sudden absence was simply another rung on his ladder of stress. I was already thinking nonstop about what I had seen and when I'd once again find myself staring at another grisly picture just like it. The rain clouds began to split as I drove through the downtown area, their dark gray forms, <laughs> harbingers of an oncoming thunderstorm. <laughs> that word again. Jim mm -hmm. lived in an apartment complex about four miles from the station, fairly close to the edge of town and far enough away from the center for very few cares to be given about any renovations that it may have needed. I had only ever been there once to drop Jim off when his car was in for repairs, but it wasn't hard to find. The rain hammered aggressively on the exterior of my car. The relentless metallic banging made me feel as though I was trapped inside a tin can at a shooting range. I pulled back into the parking lot and grabbed an anorak that had slipped from the seat to the foothold in the back of the car, thinking of what exactly I would say to Jim. That was, of course, if he hadn't locked himself in the bathroom and, well, you know, 
That wasn't an idea I was particularly fond of entertaining. I exited my car and walked briskly to the door of the apartment, dialing his room number into the panel by the door and hitting call as the rain lapped hungrily at my shoes. Jim, it's Mikhail. If you're there, open up. I'm not here to drag you back to Alverson, just here to talk. Nothing came through the receiver. Looking across the lot, I saw Jim's car parked in the looming shadow of a pine tree. I tried calling again, this time trying to sound noticeably irritated. I know you're in there, man. It's been a shitty week for everyone who's in on that case, but I've got to talk to you. Besides, it's coming down out here and I'm cold as hell. Open the damn door. The receiver cracked suddenly and a hoarse voice spilled from the speaker. Mikhail? Jesus. Yeah, uh, come on up. I pulled the door open and wasted no time in bothering myself with the elevator. I dashed up the stairs to the second floor and marched down the corridor to his room. The door opened slightly. The deadbolt rested on the frame. I had barely even rapped on the door twice before Jim pulled it open, his eyes wide and a revolver in his right hand. For Christ's sake, I flinched and almost fell backwards at the sight of the weapon's maw staring at me in the face. Jim lowered it and spoke through deep breaths and an apparent lump in his throat. I had to make sure it was you, Mike. You heard me on the whatever, I said perplexed by Jim's evidently rampant paranoia, but unwilling to make him feel any more uncomfortable than he already was. It's me, man. It's me. What the hell is this all about? I asked, gesturing to the weapon. You better come in, he said. I followed Jim into his dimly lit apartment. I had expected it to be far messier than it actually was. There were no takeout boxes littering the floor or sloppily stacked on top of one another. And no offensive smells emanated from the kitchen. Jim had clearly been drinking, however. On his coffee table sat a quarter full bottle of cognac next to a cheap-looking whiskey glass. How long have you been working on that, I said with a spiritless chuckle. Couple of days, I guess. Strong stuff. You want any? His words swayed like a tree in the breeze. I'm good, Jim. I'm going to be frank with you. I came here from the station. I saw the newspaper, and Alverson needs you to get in touch with the Jefferson Herald and tell them to put that het. Fuck, Alverson. Those were not words spoken by the liquid voice in his blood. They were assured, steady, and serious. Fuck Alverson and fuck his callous bullshit. He handled this about as well as a blind shrew with an, in a knife fight. I wouldn't even dream of bringing what I found out to him because he'd have me in jail before I'd even got the whole story out. And believe you me, Mike, I found out some stuff. I found some goddamn stuff out. What did you find out, I asked, bewildered. You're going to think I'm just a drunk asshole who snapped at the sight of too many spilled internal organs. But you're my closest damn friend here, and I trust you're going to listen to me. I'm listening, I said. Firstly, yeah, I did give the Herald that information, and there is no way in hell I'm having them pull the story. No one is safe here, and they need to know what's going on so they can take as many precautions as they can. The killer has no connections to any of the victims. Anyone could be the next casualty. Hold on, you think you know who the killer is? He gave me a steely, sincere look. My blood ran cold as disbelief flooded my veins. Jim was completely serious. Somewhere inside my head, logic and fantasy were locked in a fierce duel, and fantasy was winning. Jim, I said through nervous breaths, do you know who the killer is? If you do, how the hell did you find out? I'm not a detective, Mike. Shit, I'm barely a police officer, but I think I might actually have some idea. Go on. Jim poured himself another shallow glass of cognac. I used to frequent a bar downtown, the Foxhole. You know it. There was a retired old park ranger who would always be there on Friday nights, and he had a catalog of stories from his time, and we'd all sit around and listen to him. Well, one night... I want to say about six months ago, he told a story that he said was his last call before he retired. It happened last year. Went like this. A hiking party of about six people got stranded in the deep woods in Mount Pilchuck State Park. Wandered off the trail by accident, I guess. Two of the six people came back. Two. A woman named Estelle Palmer and a man named Reuben Grundy. Grundy was in a hell of a state when the rangers found them. Allegedly said that he had no idea where the other four people had gone that they had wandered off into the night. Here's where it gets even weirder. Palmer said that the night before they had been found, there were still three of them, another man, I think. Palmer had been in and out of sleep and swore that she saw Grundy follow the other guy into the woods when he was going to piss or something. The man never came back, but Grundy did 10 minutes later. She said he looked different, thinner, taller, and insisted that he had blood all around his mouth. She'd felt this overwhelming fear and just pretended like she was asleep. Of course, her story was written off as delirious rambling. Jim cleared his throat and took another swig. Something about the story just kind of gave me a genuine feeling of dread that none of this other guy's stories had quite done. Then the old bastard puts the cherry on top. A week later, the U.S. Forest Service finds remains in the woods with what were presumed to be human teeth marks on them, but they're so pulverized that they can't place exactly who they were. Grundy and Palmer were both interviewed, 
but nothing comes of it. Palmer even tells the same story and says that she knows what she saw, but they write it off again. I told the old man before closing time that night that he'd scared the hell out of me, but that I didn't believe him. And he just looked at me with this deadpan expression and said, look it up, son. So I did. And what do you know? It happened. Multiple different sources uh, covered the story. It fucking happened. Was barely covered on TV. Right? I started. But Pilchuck State Park is huge. The surrounding area is Reuben Grundy lives in Torkton, Mike. He owns a ranch. He fumbled around the mess of documents on the coffee table. Estelle Palmer used to live in Tarkton too, literally a quarter mile down the road from Grundy. She lived there her whole life, by the look of things. Are those police records? I asked. Jim gave me an irritated side eye and continued. Point is, after she came back from that expedition, she moved four towns away, packed up and left in about a week, sold the farmhouse she lived in to someone who had been on her ass about buying it for years, her childhood home from what I read. Whether or not Reuben Grundy was responsible for those people disappearing, she saw something happen in those woods that made it so that she wouldn't stand to be near him. Logic struggled onwards in its ongoing battle inside my brain. It strained and strained, but superstition's blade was far too sharp. Maybe she was a whack job, I said. You know what towny folks are like, live in the same place all their lives, and clean bill of mental health, Jim exclaimed waving a crumpled medical record in my face, clearly taken from a local clinic. No history of schizophrenia, depression, BPD, or even so much as a panic attack. No prescribed medications. It's entirely possible that we could put what we saw down to hunger, dehydration, or the off chance that maybe even the delayed effects of a hallucinogenic trip. But the fact of the matter is this woman up and left in a matter of days after that incident. It's not like Torkton's right next door to Mount Pilchuck either. Jim dropped the medical record to the floor and shakily pulled up another document. He was excited or terrified or both. So look here. Her new address is in May Creek. Jim, Jim, you're chasing a roller coaster of a story here, I said. If we take this to Alverson, he's going to give us a whole spiel about how we're idiots and then take it upon himself to rehire me just so he can fire me. We take it to Evans and he's going to think we're on a wild goose chase because he's a guy who deals with career criminals in Seattle and the odd home invasion. He's probably going to uh, he's probably been with the force for, what, two, three years? Face it, Mike. Our higher-ups are stuck scratching their heads, and we might actually have a lead. I know it sounds crazy. I know it's a long shot, and it's dumb luck that I heard that story, but we may have an actual suspect. In that moment, Jim's obsessive joining of the dots had rendered me dumbfounded, unable to think straight. So you're saying the killer is Reuben Grundy, Jim blurted out. Maybe I am just another drunk asshole who wishes he was a big-shot detective, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but if there's even a chance that I'm right, we have to do something. Jim had a point. Even in the midst of his fanatical behavior, Alverson didn't care, and Evans, despite leading the charge, was being eaten up by his own fear. I saw it screaming behind his eyes the night of Sally McMahon's murder. All right, what's the plan? I asked. We visit Estelle Palmer in May Creek, and we ask her about Grundy. Jim said through shaking breaths what he was like, if he seemed different during or after the hiking trip, all that jazz. If we can convince her to help us beyond just talking to us, then maybe we can actually have a chance at communicating it to Evans. Either that or she chases us out of her house with a double barrel for even asking, I said dryly. Ever the pessimist, Jim retorted. I laughed. Get some fresh clothes and sober up. Let's get our asses to May Creek. Jim and I arrived at Estelle Palmer's residence in May Creek an hour later, having backtracked along numerous roads due to the exhausted GPS in my car. We parked across from Palmer's house, number five, Fairbank Street. The place was not at all what I had anticipated. I had expected us to pull up next to an overgrown lawn brimming with tall weeds and a crudely arranged patio that led up to a dingy porch with a grimy screen door. Perhaps there would have been a sign hammered on the wall made of plywood and scrawled on it in red paint would have been the words, trespassers will be shot. It was nothing like that. If anything, it was not unlike any of the other idyllic-looking houses in May Creek. The lawn was a healthy burst of green, each blade of grass seemingly trimmed down to exactly the same size, and just by the curb lay a toy truck that must have belonged to a child. Jim swept his hair out of his eyes and opened the door of the car. Well, here goes. We either get our answers or we get a door slammed in our faces. We approached the door, peering through the living room window and catching sight of a woman sitting in a reclining chair watching a young boy of no more than three years of age playing on the floor. She looked up as Jim rang the doorbell and stood up to exit the living room, mentioning to the toddler to stay where he was. Estelle Palmer swung the door open, a sense of immediate irritation glinting in her eyes. She was about 38 years of age, with long, dirty blonde hair that fell to her shoulders. Noticing her annoyance, I began to speak. Mrs. Palmer, Miss, I'm not married, Estelle said. Right, Miss Palmer. 
Jim took over. My name is Jim McAllister, and this is Mikhail Lemansky. We don't mean to upset you, but we're cops, she snapped. Jim was visibly upset. I figured, where are you from? Sultan, don't tell me. You're from Seattle. Torkton, I said. Her glare narrowed even further. It's our understanding that you used to live there? Yes. What's it to you? She seemed even more defensive now. We came to inquire about... Jim struggled over unnecessary eloquence, even though he fully expected to receive the cold shoulder. Miss Palmer's irritation reached its peak, and she began to shut the door. It's about Reuben Grundy, Jim finally managed. She stopped and peered through the crack between the frame and the door. Her annoyance had dissipated, and worry flooded her eyes. You can come in, she finally said, ushering us inside. The interior of the house was a picturesque as the exterior, and the staircase adorned with paintings of famous North American mountains. The kitchen clean and well-organized. Estelle led us into the living room where the boy, who I presumed to be her son, looked up at us with that wide-eyed, curious expression that is so common in young children. Baby, go play in your room, okay? Estelle said to the boy. He looked down at the plastic dinosaur he was playing with, then back at his mother before picking up the toy and sauntering down to the end of the hallway. Before Jim or I could get a word out about her sweet kid, her worrisome expression returned. I haven't seen Reuben in over a year, she said. When I moved here, he used to call myself five times a week before I changed numbers. Didn't tell him I was moving here. Of course I didn't. What the hell's he done? It's not what he's done, I said. It's what we think he might have done. Miss Palmer, Jim started. Please, it's just Estelle. She said softly, seeming far less vexed by our presence than she had been minutes before. Estelle, Jim said, the situation is this. My friend and I have reason to believe that Reuben Grundy may be linked to a series of violent serial killings in Torkton. However, it's little more than that. A hunch and police investigation has been complete a complete mess from the out outset, so we need your help. It's my understanding that you knew Reuben for most of your life. Estelle sat down in the reclining chair, motioning for us to sit down on the couch. My whole life, yeah. His old man, Scott, owned this ranch down the road from my old house, and he inherited the whole place when Scott passed. We were in the same grade at school. He was always a smart, worldly guy and knew a whole lot about nature and cared a lot for the animals he reared on the ranch. Could name every damn plant in the woods, she chuckled as she reminisced. Throughout your childhood, did he ever seem off to you at any point? I asked. No, never. Not once did I have him pinned as the outcast or the weirdo kid. Everyone in high school loved Reuben. I have to ask about the hiking trip, Jim said. Four people disappeared, and you and Reuben were the only ones who came back. You moved away a week after. What the hell happened? Estelle's voice quaked as she spoke, fear mingling with the worry in her eyes. Reuben, she trailed off, straining against the painful memories to force the words out. Reuben changed on that trip. We were a week into it, and there was clearly something strange going on with him. Usually, he'd be mush musing about conifer trees and mountain lions, but he barely spoke, and when he did, the way he talked was fragmented and hoarse, like he'd forgotten his own native language. He seemed, to, he seemed irritated when we tried to talk to him. He didn't talk about much, but when he did, when he did, he said her words crumpled to the floor again. I leaned forward. What did he say, Estelle? He said he was hungry. An electric current surged down my spine. The silence rang in my ears like the whining aftermath of an explosion. I'd hear him at night. He'd sit out by the fire longer than anyone and mutter to himself, saying things like, God, I'm so fucking hungry, in this voice that I've never heard come out of him before. When it became obvious that we were lost, that's when people started disappearing. First Becca, then Miguel, then Ruth, and then Nick. The night before we were found, when Nick disappeared, I saw Reuben follow him in the forest. I didn't hear anything, but Reuben came back later without him. He looked different, sickly, pale, skinny, taller somehow, and I, I swear to God, he was covered in blood. I looked over at Jim, who was staring intently at her. Jesus Christ, you drunk bastard, you brilliant drunk bastard. You might actually be onto something. Maybe I was delirious. Maybe I, I was... He looked the same as ever the next day when the park rangers found us. I just couldn't shake this feeling that I was still in danger, though. He talked in that cracked horse way still. The police paid it no mind, wrote it off as the effects of dehydration, and wrote my story off as a mirage. I moved as soon as I could when I got home, stayed with my mom in Olympia for a short while before I found a place here in May Creek. Like I said, maybe I am crazy, was crazy. I'm not saying Reuben Grundy definitely killed those people, but I am certain that something in those woods got inside of him and made itself a home, and I don't think it ever left. Oui. Jim's intense concentration turned to slight confusion. What do you mean, something? Estelle gave a half-smile as though she were embarrassed. I'm not one to believe in folktales, Mr. McAllister. Never have been. 
even when my old man tried to scare me to death with them when I was much older than my son. But Reuben was always the same up until that trip, and he changed so suddenly. Call it what you want, a spirit, a sickness, the call of nature, whatever. Something took a hold of Reuben, took him away. I'm not saying that if you investigate him, you, sh you definitely find the answers you're looking for, but you might want to try. Noticing that Estelle was on the verge of tears, I grabbed Jim's arm and said, thank you so much for your help. We should probably get going and leave you in peace. Estelle, Jim said tentatively, I don't suppose we could convince you to come with us? No, she interjected. I can't see Reuben ever again, not after what I saw in those woods. He doesn't know where I live, but I still lock every door and window at night, still watch the footage from the security camera every morning. Sometimes I think if I met him again, it would lay some ghosts to rest, but something tells me those ghosts are real damn stubborn. I can't put myself in danger. I'm the only thing that Robert has. She motioned down the hall toward her son's bedroom. Jim looked as though he were about to persist in his argument, but he simmered down quickly. Thank you for your time, Estelle, sincerely. Jim said as he, as we stood up and walked to the door, we're going to go give Reuben a visit and we will find out who's doing this, I promise. Thank you, Estelle replied. Good luck. She silently watched us walk down the driveway to the car, solemn look in her eyes. Perhaps she was reliving all those memories, or perhaps she thought she had just sent us further into something we would regret being part of. I looked over at the house one last time as I started the car. Through the living room window, I could make out a blurred picture of Estelle cradling her son in a tender embrace. We drove. I pulled the car up to Torquedon Police Station at 6.15 p.m., having convinced a particularly irate Jim to stop off there first. I told him to wait in the car while I briefly went to talk to Alverson. Apparently, he'd at the very least done a good job of rounding up the local populace for questioning as I had to sift through a chattering crowd of townsfolk who gathered outside and inside the station. I ran to Alverson's office, rapping sharply on the door. Who the hell is it? Came a gritty, aggravated yell. I opened the door and my gaze met Sheriff Alverson's cockeyed stare. Where the fuck have you been, Lemansky? Have you interviewed a man named Reuben Grundy? I asked, ignoring him. Who? Alverson asked. Reuben Grundy, rancher from the north end of Torquedon. Fuck should I know, Alverson said, taking an aggressive swig of his coffee. Officer Barnett has a checklist. Go ask her. Now, where in God's name have you been? You get McAllister to pull that article? I slammed his door and ran to the front desk where I found Officer Barnett busying herself with an Excel spreadsheet. I nearly collided with the desk, startling her. Eve, I said, letting out a long-held breath. Have you interviewed a man named Reuben Grundy yet? Visibly confused by my urgency, she pulled up the records and perused them for about ten seconds. Uh, looks like we had him in a couple of hours ago. We cleared him. He's not down as a suspect. Christ, where's Detective Evans? Monroe, she said absent-mindedly. Something came up from another case and he left a few hours ago. How long did you have Grundy in the interview room for? My words were ablaze with insistence. Five minutes, in and out, Barnett replied. You've got to be fucking kidding me. They didn't even ask him about the hiking trip? Thanks. I dashed out the station, feeling the mystified eyes of the townspeople boring into me. Jim was waiting in anticipation, craning his neck around as I ran toward the car. I threw the door open and clambered inside. They cleared the bastard two hours ago. Evans is in Monroe. We're heading to Grundy's place. Let's go, Jim said. His tone was crawling with nerves. He had clearly expected it to come to this, but now the reality of it was sinking in. Fear brewed underneath my adrenaline rush. The sun began to exhaustedly sink below the distant mountain as we sped through Torquedon, painting a crimson outline on the remaining clouds. The stench of dread began to creep in through the cracked passenger side window with every inch that the sun receded. I began to wish that it would take longer to get to Grundy's ranch, anything to stave off the terrible gut feeling. So, Evans went to Monroe. What for? Jim asked, obviously desperate to break the silence. Barnett said it was another case. Whether or not that's a lie, I don't know. I don't care. He's shit scared and he's not here, which makes him useless, I replied. What about Alverson? He wasn't even doing so much as ushering the interview he's in. Just asked me about whether or not the Herald had been convinced to pull the front page. We're on our own, Jim. As I said that, the row of buildings on North Avenue disappeared and Grundy's ranch came into view. Sitting less than a quarter of a mile down the road from where we were, I could see a modest-looking, well-kept one-story house that sat at the end, at the head of a sprawling two, perhaps three acres of land that I assumed all belonged to Grundy. As all throughout the grassland were grazing cattle, and out behind the house stood a barn, towering proudly over the tiny abode in all of the rustic glory. Doing our utmost to compose ourselves, Jim and I parked the car at the end of the gravel driveway, preparing for what would hopefully be our final, final visit of the day. We walked up the front to the front of the house, trepidation hanging like a meat hook on the otherwise calming summer breeze. 
I knocked on the screen door and squinted through the glass. From the end of the hallway emerged a man, standing about six foot four. He made a slow jog toward the screen and pulled it open enthusiastically. He was as tan as one might expect a rancher to be, dressed in tattered jeans and a polo shirt, and looked to be in his late thirties. He had thinning brown hair that stuck out in tufts from underneath an ill-fitting baseball cap, and a subtly auburn colored beard. He gave a smile, his eyes glinting a little. Can I help you boys? He asked, his voice a chipper, gravelly song. I was thrown off for a second. I had expected a weathered, malnourished looking man covered, covering covering his face with a wide-brimmed hat. I had expected an inhuman rasp. I had expected him to tell us to leave him alone. Jim jumped in. My name's off Detective Cal Moreno, and this is Detective Dave Crowley. We're, we're here regarding the town-wide questioning of the residents of Torkton. Grundy chuckled nervously, his brow wrinkling. Oh, right. There must have been some mistake. The police already interviewed me a few hours ago. We understand, sir, and we're very sorry to trouble you, I said, joining Jim and playing the role of Detective Crowley. See, Jim said, it's a big operation and the Torkton Police Department are swamped, as you might imagine. Unfortunately, they missed a couple of vital questions when interviewing a few people and they've sent us round to get extra details. Oh, right. Of course, Grundy said, his expression softening a little. By all means, come inside. Jim and I stepped into the hallway as Grundy closed the door. Inside, the temperature was cool, yet an unpleasant smell sat in the air. I heard the door lock behind us. Had the door been locked before? I couldn't remember. Hope you boys will forgive me for the smell, he laughed. Got a rat infestation at the moment, and the bastards keep dying in the walls and underneath the floorboards. I try to keep the stench away as best I can till I can dig them out. Right on, man, I said, humoring his conversation. Had a problem with rats myself about a month ago. Grundy led us to the kitchen, which seemed to be the biggest and most impressive room in the otherwise small house, with a large granite counter spanning its entire length, and a state-of-the-art cooker sitting in the middle. On the counter was a hefty pile of raw meat. Christ, I remarked. That's all from your cattle? Yes, sir, Grundy exclaimed with pride. All locally sourced to this very ranch. The butcher shops downtown love this stuff. I'll bet, I said. Now, Mr. Grundy, you mind if Detective Moreno and I ask you some questions? Shouldn't take long. Sure, have a seat, Grundy said, gesturing to the kitchen table. He leaned against the counter, turning his attention to the pile of meat. He still hadn't asked to see our badges. I'm listening, boys. Fire away. Truckton Station clocks your interview at about five minutes, correct? I asked. Yeah, real quick in and out. Think they wrote me off because, well, I don't have a record, and I mean, look at this place. I'm busy all the time. I ain't got kids to help me around this ranch, Grundy replied. Of course, as far as criminal charges go, <clears throat> as far as criminal charges go, your record's completely clean, Mr. Grundy, Jim said. Mm-hmm. Grundy picked up a meat cleaver and began hacking at the steak. The instrument came down with a resounding thwack, separating a piece of the animal's flesh from the rest of the flank. I suppose we're here to ask about the hiking trip uh, you took in April of 2003 with a party of five other people, I said. Grundy exhaled loudly as though he were sighing. However, he didn't turn around or stop what he was doing. The cleaver came down again, louder this time. Of course, I was a little surprised myself that they didn't ask. Well, we'll start uh, with a general question, I began. What happened? What's your story? Huh. Got lost on the sixth day of the trip. We'd intended it to be a long trip anyhow, but we ended up having a hell of a time finding the foot of the mount of Mount Pilchuck and found ourselves lost in the woods with no idea which direction we were supposed to go. Becca disappeared on the first night that we got lost. He paused, falling into a reminiscent chasm for just a moment. And did you know Becca well? Jim asked. Known her since high school. We were going to get married this year. There was pain in his voice. This isn't our guy. Shit, this isn't our guy. I'm sorry, I said. That must have been diff... I was cut off by the startling sound of the cleaver making contact with the cutting board, slicing cleanly through another piece of meat, much louder than before. Yeah, I try not to think about it. It got hazy after that. Real hazy. There was this pain. It sounded like he was struggling through his sentences now. Pain? I asked. Started in my head, clouded my vision. How did you... How did the pain go on for? How long did the pain go on for? Jim asked. The electric current I had felt in Estelle's living room sprung to life again. It was like a blade this time, grazing my spine with serrated teeth. I thought I had become accustomed to the stink of the dead rodents, but I knew that, that what that smelled like, this was something different, something that carried a far more bitter, bitter scent. I hope you boys will forgive me for the smell. Two days, spread to my hands and feet, felt, felt numb after that, and then I, I guess I felt good. Grundy said, his voice assuming a strange grating quality. He brought the cleaver down again, the abrasive thud accompanied by the wet sound of tearing meat. Grundy turned around and looked at us. And looked at us. He seemed paler than he had before, his posture slightly crooked. The glint in his eyes was gone. What do you remember about the disappearance of Nick Lee the night before you were rescued? I inquired. 
He paused, setting the cleaver down. Had I blacked out? His cheekbones were now sunken. His eyes were even darker. His mm. fingers were freakishly long and thin, and an eerie silence waltzed with the tension that had clouded the kitchen. It was just animals at first. His voice was sickly rasp. What? Mm. When I came back from the trip, it was just animals. Coyotes, mountain lions, prairie dogs, none of my own cattle. What the hell are you talking about? My mouth was dry. The stinging scent of decomposition couldn't be ignored. It was just animals until the feeling came back. There was something in those woods, boys. Something that called to me. Something that wouldn't let me die. Something that told me. Grundy's voice was no longer a rasp. It sounded like a ghostly moan, as though his voice were wrapped up in a violent gale. His eyes were cold in black pits. His teeth were unnaturally long, forming yellow daggers in his mouth and forcing his face into a mocking grin. Jen stood up, backing away. Told you what, Mr. Grundy? Something that told me to eat, Grundy finally said. Despite his unnatural tone, his voice was somehow cold, matter of fact. I killed the people on that hiking trip. I knew all of them, and I killed them and ate their flesh, Grundy said. Oh my god, oh my fucking god, Estelle was right. There was no logical resolution to what had seemed like a crazy hunch. We were two idiots in over her heads. Whoa, why? Jim could hardly speak. I tried eating animals and raw meat until that feeling came back. He began circling the table. That's when I began breaking into houses. People I didn't know, people I did know, some I liked, some I didn't care for. I tore them all apart. I stood up and stumbled away next to Jim as Reuben Grundy stalked towards us, his sharp canines protruding. Why are you telling us this? Because, his icy tone began to thaw. They can do what they like with me now. They can fry me. They can commit me as another criminally insane nut because they think they can control me like every other guy that went out and killed young girls because mommy was too rough on them. It helps them sleep at night to know that those sick bastards are all just human beings that they can control one way or another. But this rage inside me, this power, a thick rope of drool fell from his mouth and pulled on the floor. There are things darker than man in this world, boys. In the soil, in the mountains, in the trees, in some dark corner of a big city. It might make you feel better to believe that other people are the cruelest thing this life has to offer, but I'm afraid that just isn't true. Grundy's mouth was unnaturally wide, the bed of spikes inside no longer resembling anything remotely human. A small glimmer sat in the center of his black eyes like a tiny, brilliant star inside a black hole. Hunger. Jim and I dived in opposite directions as Grundy lunged at both of us, an animalistic howl erupting from his throat. I heard a chair collide with the counter as I scrambled to my feet, coming face to face with the creature that had been, or still was, Reuben Grundy. Any disbelief I had could not be justified. This nightmarish picture was here in front of me, and it was very, very real. Just as his maw opened again and another monstrous groan emitted from within him, a gunshot rang out and Grundy doubled over in pain, screeching with the ferocity of a thousand banshees. Jim stood behind him, his pistol drawn. Grundy twitched violently, the motion producing a sickening crunch, as though one of his bones had broken. Without a moment's hesitation, Grundy jumped from the floor to the ceiling and took off down the hallway to what had, I had assumed to be the staircase to the basement, skittering like an insect. His harrowing howl echoed through the house like another angry gust of wind. Drawing my own weapon, Jim and I gave chase. The door to the basement hung wide open, and any vaguely pleasant smells in the house were now being eaten alive by the very clear aura of death. This wasn't the smell of a rat problem, that was for sure. For about ten seconds, the house resounded with clattering and screaming coming up from the basement, and as soon as it had begun, it had suddenly ceased. Dead silence. I exchanged a terrified glance with Jim. I wish I was still drunk, Jim grumbled shakily. We cautiously crept down the stairs to the basement, the light dwindling more and more with each step. My hands were gripping the pistol so hard that my knuckles had turned white and an oasis of sweat had sprung from my palms. Jim fumbled in his coat pocket and pulled out a flashlight, turning it on and allowing the beam to illuminate the pitch blackness. The beam pierced the void and sat in the doorway, creating a tunnel of light that led our, led our eyes to a sight that confirmed what I had feared the moment that smell hit me. The floor of the basement was piled with remains of all kinds, animal, human, arms, legs, insides. Some had clearly been dragged down here no more than a few days ago, and some were weeks, maybe even months old, left on the ground to decay and denied a real burial. A shuffling sound from off to the left grabbed our attention, and Grundy snapped back into view, his metamorphosis having advanced even further. He stood well over seven feet tall, his rib cage protruding as though his skin were vacuum-packed around it. 
His face was now ghoulishly inhuman, his ribcage protruding as though his skin were vacuum-packed around it. His face was now ghoulishly inhuman, his eyes like hollow pits and his teeth like battle-scarred tusks. Reuben Grundy perched like a gargoyle atop his morbid spoils, a king of the dead in his hall of treasures. He spoke a baritone growl sitting underneath his strangled voice. Sorry, the refrigerator down here is broken. A sick smile spread across his face, and it was enough to tip Jim and I over the edge. We just started shooting, and we kept on shooting until both our weapons had completely run out of bullets. When our eyes were no longer obscured by the obnoxious muzzle flashes, the flashlight fell on what was seemingly the lifeless corpse of the beast that Reuben Grundy had turned into. We were both shocked, having expected him to attempt to flee the basement or at least jump out of the way. The twisted monster now lay still among his quarries. The entire Torkton Police Department arrived half an hour later, and the deeply panicked white-faced Detective Evans arrived another half hour after that. The whole cleanup operation took the best part of an entire week, but that first night was a harrowing ordeal. What the Even- fuck? <clears throat> this shit is nuts. Honestly, yes. I wanted to hear more about the folklore part. This is cool, whoever wrote this. Yeah. In one continuous read, it would definitely be scary. Like, I would be actually scared. Mm. All the interruptions helping. Yeah, it was It was definitely <laughs> freaking me out. I was, like, picturing... I kind of picturing, like, a windigo. Yeah, exactly. When she kept saying that he looked taller, I was like, no, he, no, 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 no. That he was all the day, yeah. Imagine if there was somebody you knew and they went into the woods and when they came back, they were taller. No, I think. And you don't want to think they're evil, but. Yeah, no, I would instantly say something like, listen, (laughs) something's wrong with you. We're in the woods. I'm leaving. Yeah. God. And then they were like, well, we had our knees done. Ugh. (laughs) Okay, like, you can't do that. You can't. You can do that? (laughs) Oh, shit. I keep hitting that. Okay. For real now. It's almost over. Jesus. Keep it together, little dogs. (laughs) Even for those who didn't have to scrape up the remains or lay eyes on the creature that was responsible. If it had been any other case, I would have relished the look of horror on Sheriff Alverson's face when he knew quite how badly he had handled everything and the realization that he would have to deal with those fucking Hoover boys when a black SUV pulled up outside the crime scene. The expression on his face was one shared by everyone who had to wrap their heads around the fact that the near eight-foot-tall monster that was dragged out of that basement had been at one point Reuben Grundy. I was glad that the case had been closed, but I felt very little in the way of catharsis. Gemini had come face to face with the unknown, and the unknown had filled our heads with something unforgettable. There are things darker than man out there, things we can't control. What the fuck? Things we can't control, and the way that we can control the Dahmers and the John Wayne Gacy's of the world. We may have to put an end to Reuben Grundy's otherwise never-ending hunger, but whatever was inside him is still tearing its way through the forests and the mountains, searching for another viable host to infect with the burning rage it carries with it. I'm not so sure what we can always fight and what we don't understand. Wow. <gasps> Yay. That shit was spectacular. Oh, the, the writer jumped on. He said, hey, everyone, I'm the original author of the story, and I've got to say I'm blown away by the response. Thank you so much to everyone, everyone who's enjoyed it. I don't have a website present, presently. However, I have a number of other short stories written that submitting. Cool. Well, yeah, that was great. Good job to the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it. A little bit of true crime, a little bit of mystery, a little bit of creature. Yes. Cryptid situation. Oh. So it was something. So their theory is that it's something in the woods that just finds anyone who's hungry and like, is like okay. The fucking Evil Dead. Yeah. Oh. Ah. Ooh. It just so happens whoever's there. Yes, and the way that it like searches for someone. So I'm picturing. That is a good point. And then they just start changing. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Um. Interesting. I wonder why it picked him. I don't know. Because he was there. 
I wonder if, <laughs> I wonder if it, cause like with Wendigos or like the folklore type, it's like, I thought you had to be a certain kind of like culture or something to fall under that same kind of thing. But if it's a different, if it's a different thing altogether, then it's not. Yeah. Um, but anyways, that was creepy. I liked that. Yeah, that was good. I'm trying to warm us up for Halloween time. Halloween. I have some big uh, topics coming up too, so I just Whee! wanted to do something short this week. How did you feel about that stuff that I sent you last night? Oh, okay, yeah. I was wondering, did you want me to post it as a story or like a post or? I mean, what we could talk about it here. We could or, yeah. do whatever you want to do mention it here i don't it don't matter to me let's see okay so daniela enlightened me on uh wednesday night so yesterday that um oh gosh this one is more shocking well i don't know they're kind of equally shocking but a manson follower leslie van hooten is granted parole um as of wednesday so i wonder how people are taking that not well because she wasn't uh there for the um for like the Sharon Tate murder mm-hmm. but she was for the La Biancas. Um yeah, she killed them or she helped kill them. And how old was she? She was probably like a teen, right? Like a I want to say she was 17. I don't actually oh. she might have been older. Cuz you could play it off as like well she's a naive child, so obviously, but no. I don't uh, know. Well, now she's 73. Do you she think looks, people can be reformed? She's harmless now? I don't I don't know. Regardless, she, people don't forgive her, so. Yeah. She looks like a sweet little grandma, but obviously. I know, right? Imagine. And she had originally been sentenced to death, but they changed oh, it. We haven't covered any of that stuff. I wonder if people are even still interested in that. I mean, that now it's like getting stirred up again. That's absolutely true. Hmm. Um, at the time, she was... Hold on. Mm. Motherfucker, 1969. She was born in 1949. Yeah, she was 20. Damn. I had to do math for that, guys. That's how fucking yeah. dumb I am. <laughs> but she was uh, sentenced to death, but in 1972, the death penalty was ruled unconstitutional in California. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what <clears throat> stopped the whole thing. Yeah. So, so then, yeah, for sure, people are like, hell no, keep her in there till she's gone. Yeah. Well, and now she's got. Are any of Manson's other people still in prison? Yes, I think a lot of it. I mean, right now, this lady is seventy-three years old. Dang. Mm -hmm. Well, that is interesting. How that's possible, and nobody ever thinks it'll happen. But there she is. She is on. She's free. Yeah. Much. Um, and then on the second thing that she that Daniela sent me, Danny Masterson convicted on two counts of forcible rape faces thirty years in prison. Thirty years. Bye. I can't believe he got to be out this long. It's because he's part of the Scientology, and they oh they would save his ass. Over yeah, they time. tried really hard, but he, there's no nothing's gonna save him now. I think I did look into that. And that's the common. Or one of the, I think it, he's done this to multiple girls, but um, one of them is the wife of one of the mm. members of the Mars Volta. Oh my gosh. Interesting. Yeah. And we talked about them in one of our episodes. Too. We sure did. Ugh. Was it shocking when you found out these accusations were coming when they first started coming out? Yes, I was so upset. A lot of people love this guy on seventy show. I loved him. He was like, mm. I used to the bad boy of the group. Yes, because and then I used to think that Jeremy reminded me of him. That's funny. 
Oh, Jesus. Well, and now I'm like, never. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, a lot of people had to freaking come to terms. Yeah, yeah guess sucks. what, guys? Rapists can be likable, unfortunately. I just um, can't imagine. I can't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Him doing. Yeah. Like, whenever you picture. Because, okay, what a big one for our whole freaking. It was like a culture shock when Bill Cosby. Oh, yeah. But I can. <gasps> I can Picture, see Danny Masterson doing, doing that. It. Oh, you can't. Yeah, like like trying to like, which is horrible that you, but to get that yes. image in your head of somebody that's a likable guy. Yes. But you know what? Ugh. It's because the only reason I can not, I mean, the only reason I can see it is because he played a bad boy, right? Well, yeah, I guess. But the personality at the same time, like. Oh jeez! I don't like thinking about it because that '70s show is like a comfort show that I like to watch. But, I know, but he's yeah. Uh, yep. I don't even want to know what he would be like in real life because. I know. Imagine being like a fan of the show, right? And you get to meet your hero, and then that happens. As yeah, well. and then oh he's a God. fucking douche canoe. Like what? Disgusting. Yeah. Um. Well, good. I'm glad that he's going to prison because, yeah. Just because you have money, you're not above the fucking law, and it's about time that everything is treated that way. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that sucks because I'm like so much time had passed too, so it's like. Mm-mm. Yeah, but his cult could not save him. Right. I'm sure, that's. I wonder if he was shocked. He was like, "What?" This. I'm sure. Happens. Well, it said I was reading one of the articles. His wife was in the courtroom, and she like let out like this <gasps> horrific gasp like this horrific oh, moan oh no uh, oh my gosh his wife so <sighs> she wasn't expecting it i guess wow yeah oh man well um that's wild in other news the volcano is still actively releasing gas and ash and the winds have kind of been keeping it from the major populated areas, but it's still like erupting technically, mm-hmm. but not like fully. So that's terrifying. And what else? Has anyone died? Um, I'm not sure actually. That's a good question. Um, I want to say no, but I would not. I would not know. Imagine sure. being. A, this is. <laughs> it pertains to an episode that we did the other day, or the one that I did on the natural disaster. <laughs> goes yes mm-hmm. um i just didn't want to sound like insensitive but imagine being a ghost after dying in a volcano explosion right. like mm-hmm. just wander the land isn't that nuts i don't know it's crazy to think about like because all i when i think of volcano i think of like pompeii like old school shit yeah, that's sad so i can't i don't know True that. Yeah, having to like, uh, because yes, it, it can take a long time to erupt, but sometimes it'll just freaking erupt. And so people are just, you know, dead where they stood. Yeah, that's Mount St. Helens, Mount St. Oh, Helens. Mm-hmm. That old man that lived there, a lot, there was several people that got caught and died in it. There was, um, there was something else that I read too about um, this girl that survived uh, I think it was an, uh, a volcano explosion, but they, she was in the crater <gasps> with wow. her family and her family died and she survived, oh but she gosh. has like horrific burns. Oh no. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That's traumatic. Well, that's sad. I hope it doesn't erupt. Like I don't want a bunch of people displaced cause it is really scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there is something. Oh, the Lori Vallow situation. Have you been following that trial? Oh, dude. She got sentenced to life or death. I think she got death. She's on death row. No, let me Google it real quick because I, I keep be forgetting right. I think to she bring was that sentenced up. To death. Let's see. Uh, guilty of, yes. Uh, well, if she fa- she's found guilty, but I don't know if they have a. Let me see sentencing. Francis. No, she's gonna get sentenced on July thirty first. Oh, what the fuck did they just do then? 
they got she's guilty, but they're just coming up with what she should go through, I guess. Oh, sentenced. Like, sentence, yeah. They're determining what she should be sentenced. Um, yeah, wild. That is that stuff. I remember when those kids were missing. I do too. You were going to cover the case and we still have it. Oh, we still have it, but at least now there's going to be an outcome with everything because they couldn't find that bitch for a long time. Yeah. She's, ugh. I'm, and she's like laughing and stuff during the trial. That's fucking ridiculous. She's such a piece is. of shit. Yeah, genuinely. Um, anyways, but yeah, and I'm glad that they got her for the murder of the ex wife too. Yeah, I'm glad for that too. I did see that. Um, alrighty, well, um, I hope that you guys enjoyed my um, little reading of that creepy pasta. Please submit stories so that I could read yours on our podcast as well. Um, that would be awesome. And don't forget to give us a follow over on Instagram and on Twitter, and join our group on Facebook. Give me the creeps. G I M M E G I M M E the creeps. I can't today. My brain is literally. Mm. I can't. Um, I really appreciate all of you guys' support. Um, what else? Happy Stay safe. Pride month. Happy Pride Month. Definitely happy Pride Month. And um, stay out of the heat. Be careful. Drink lots of water. Stay safe. Thanks for uh, listening, guys. I'll catch you next week. So did we give you the creeps?